1: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com/sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom.
2: Thank you so much. All right, let's not barge into a crystal. I've already told myself that. (laughs) of that yesterday. I thought, oh, that would be real shame. (laughs) 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 Let's just sit here. (laughs) Uh, It's getting kind of humid, isn't it? (laughs) That's my joke about Maui. Uh, It's really a commentary on relationship. When I talked about the transformation of our relationship to everything, That also includes our relationship to pleasure, to joy, to wonder, to the wondrous, beautiful things that come our way because sometimes we are so distracted. We hardly even can take them in. Or sometimes we're so keyed into what we think we need but don't yet have that we tend to ignore what we do have, right? Like, I will never be happy until I have that crystal in my apartment in New York. (laughs) Forget the fact that I have an apartment in New York, which is kind of glorious, right? It's like, I need that crystal. So that's a problem. And of course, uh, the humidity part, we can be kind of apologetic or defensive or or feel that uh, we don't deserve to be happy in some profound way. And uh, so the story I usually tell about that is a previous visit to Maui. Um, on the other end of the island. And uh, it was, you know, of course, a retreat around us, and so it was on my schedule and very public. But somehow when I got to the island, I did something extra, like I tweeted about it or something. Because all of a sudden I was getting all of these messages from people, like, wow, you're on Maui. And I found myself writing back saying, it's very humid here. (laughs) It's like... It's terribly humid here, right? And actually, I was leaving that hall, and Ambika and a, a friend were behind me because I, I spoke about that in the hall as an example of the kind of thing we might do in the face of, you know, this wonder and this joy. And um, Ambika was behind me and uh, walking out with the now adult son of a friend of ours, and he was saying to her, Boy, my mom came so close to coming. She really wanted to come, and she couldn't pull it off at the last minute. Now she's so filled with regret. She's so regretful. And without missing a beat, um, Ambika said to him, did you tell her how humid it is here? (laughs) It's like, we can be like that, right? So that's an interesting thing to uncover. (laughs) And I did notice some humidity today. Um... And, of course, in the face of adversity, difficulty, pain, sorrow, uh, we can have all kinds of complicated relationships. You know, I should have been able to stop this. I should be in control. This is wrong. Uh, That just exacerbate the difficulty and the complexity. And I think we also know, we probably all know somebody who maybe has gone through or is going through a lot of difficulty, and yet there is something that emerges with them in the in the nature of compassion and openness and love. And um, it's just an extraordinary thing to see that uh, people can have such a rough time sometimes. And intact within us seems to be this capacity, if we can touch it, and if we can nurture it, uh, to be really different with it. Not to deny it, you know, pretend everything is just the way we want it to be, because it's not very often. But to be able to integrate that, too, into some bigger field. And its it does seem to be about connecting to something bigger, a different sense of meaning, a different sense of possibility, or the force of love, the force of compassion, which which can keep us going. And uh, as you know, <coughs> um, I co-founded a retreat center in Massachusetts, the Insight Meditation Society, which is in this little town called Barry Mass, right in the center of the state. And, in fact, Barry lays claim to being in the exact center of the state. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's part of their uh, brochure. And... Uh, so um, when we first moved in, which was 1976, we thought, oh, we should really get to meet some of the townspeople and, and help them see who we are. So there's a clinic uh, in Barry, a health clinic. So we invited up the doctors and the nurses and people who worked in the clinic for lunch one day. And uh, we had on staff at the time an old friend who had been with us in India uh, before we came back and started the center. And, and she was, we were just talking for some reason about how hot it can be in New Delhi, you know, just gruelingly hot in certain seasons. And she was saying, yeah, I was there in the hot season. And I was having a particularly hard time. I was going from government office to government office trying to renew my visa. And I was feeling especially affected by the heat because I had. Worms, dysentery, and hepatitis. And so I was really having a hard time in the heat. So one of the the doctors she was talking to looked totally appalled, and he said, you had worms, dysentery, and hepatitis, and you were trying to renew your visa. He said, what were you doing, holding out for leprosy? (laughs) And... You know, it's not that it's always correct or wise to stay in a situation, you know, and uh, be cut off from what you're actually experiencing. I don't mean to imply that. But I also knew she would probably talk about that time as the happiest time of her life because there was a sense of discovery and learning and community. We found each other and we found models. We found teachers and beings who were unconditionally loving, and um, it was a different way of experiencing the adversity because it was in a much bigger context. It was just held in a different fashion. So please don't necessarily stay in India uh, when you really need to leave. It's not that, but I just think that's so amazing. We have this ability within us to actually not be defined by the circumstance we find ourselves in. And genuinely, really, not in a phony way or make-believe way, but really connect to something bigger, um, which could be the force of compassion and the power of loving kindness or or one another, whatever it might be. And so that's part of our exploration. When we say come back to the moment, uh, it's not to make our world smaller, but it's because that's the access point to to really being able to enter this kind of experience, whatever it is for us, that lets us really not be circumscribed by what what is happening, but experience it genuinely and truly, but in a much bigger space of whatever. Wisdom, balance, transparency, loving-kindness, and that will give us the resourcefulness and, and the resiliency and the wherewithal uh, to keep on going in, in a very different way. So those are all these practices you know, that we play with and experiment with and, and explore um, so that we have all of those in a kind of incorporated, integrated, embodied way, and they're available to us. So I think... One of the ways in which we're very lucky is that uh, we have the opportunity to explore lots of different means and methods and methodless paths and whatever it might be and, and feel the sense of, of resource, right? That we can connect to something which will help guide us through the good times and the hard times and, Everything in between. They say in uh, Tibetan teaching, Tibetan Buddhist teaching, to look at the thoughts and feelings that come up in your mind like they were clouds moving through the sky. Or as one of my uh, teachers said, it's not the thoughts that come up in our minds That's the problem. The problem is the glue, right? We grab something, we take it to heart. It defines our world, everything that we will ever be, what our lives are about, and we want enough space so we don't necessarily get caught in that process, and then we have a choice. Is that something I want to go with, or is that a story I can I can well let go of, and uh, often it helps to have an anchor, like the breath or whatever, just to to help in that process of of coming back and and having that that sense of spaciousness rather than just being lost in in whatever is coming up. Or sometimes I describe it this way: as we. Um, we always say in, in truth and in great gratitude, Ramdas gave my colleague Joseph Goldstein his first teaching job, which is true. And then Joseph gave me a teaching job. So I literally wouldn't be here in this room without Ramdas. Um, and uh, this was in 1974 in uh, Boulder, Colorado with the opening of Naropa Institute. It was the first summer institute. And um, Joseph and Jack Cornfields, whom we met there at, in Boulder at the time in 1974, and I uh, spent a while wandering around and were responding to requests. We'd get a letter saying, I can get together some friends and a cook. Would you teach a retreat? And we'd say, sure. And then we would lead, lead the retreat. And at the end of the retreat, we never knew if there'd be another retreat. Until the next letter would come, and we spent years doing this—just sleeping on people's living room couches and, you know, just having a certain kind of life. We were young, and uh, then somebody suggested that we start a retreat center of our own. And, you know, they said it would be like a sacred site in the U.S. It would be a place where the amazing energy that gets engendered when people come together doesn't have to dissipate. Uh, at the end of the the program. So we said, sure, and to the undying regret of people now, uh, the people who really knew what to do, like the people who knew what a mortgage was, for example, were all in New England. You know, people say, there was nothing you could have had anywhere. Why not Hawaii? Why not California? But it was New England. So we actually looked up and down the East Coast. And finally, we were, we were directed to this place in Barry, Massachusetts, which was a Catholic novitiate at the time. It was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So we went to Barry. It was December of 1975. And we looked at this place, and we just couldn't decide what to do. In the one hand, it seemed really perfect to have a retreat center there, it's very quiet, it's very pretty, there's nothing much happening in Barrie, it's very placid. Um, um, But on the other hand, it seemed really kind of big. I mean, we had just been back for under two years probably, and uh, there was no sense at all of how many people in this country might be interested in this meditation thing, or, you know, especially one particular form of it, and so it seemed so big. It it was just kind of overwhelming. So not knowing what to do, we decided to go to downtown Barry for lunch. And uh, is a very classical New England town, which has a town green just in the center of it. And in those days, there was a monument on the town green, which had engraved upon it the Barry town motto, which is tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that, and we said, "Okay, that's an omen. (laughs) Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a retreat center in it. Because not only are those the qualities we talk about all the time, there's a lot about let's bring those into balance, right? So we have peace and calm and tranquility, but not so much that we're just snoozing. Let's also have alertness and energy and interest and investigation, of our experience, but not so much that we're agitated or anxious, right? So it's really a key teaching, tranquil and alert. So we said, okay, we'll do it. And we did it. And I still, I really enjoy it. We have, I think, two police cars in town. You know, it says tranquil and alert on the door. And uh, these friends of mine got married in town, and that's what's stamped on their wedding certificate, tranquil and alert, which I think is not a bad blessing for a marriage. And um, so... That's the Barrytown motto. Now, when we bought the building, it was a novitiate. It started out as a private home, as a mansion. So there's, like, the central part um, is a private home. And then there were these different wings built as it went through these different incarnations. And uh, the private home was built by this man named Colonel Gaston, who at one point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. And in the... Um, history of the town of Barry, which can be found in the Barry Town Library, um, there's a whole section on Colonel Gaston. And in this in this pamphlet they say Colonel Gaston had a motto that he himself lived by, which was you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> so I read that. and First of all, I wondered how well he might have gotten along with his neighbors, who presumably were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. Um, But I love telling those stories in juxtaposition because I think we often do. We have a sense of a motto, a theme, what our lives are about, what's going to make us really happy, where we'll find meaning, what we're capable of, what we're limited to we tend to have a kind of motto, conscious or unconscious. And very often, it's pretty small. It's it's quite excessively limited just through the force of conditioning. So one of the thoughts that we see, uh, like clouds moving through the sky, um, is this deeper sense. It's this deeper definition of, of what our lives are about. Uh, we would say aspiration, you know, what is, what do we really want? What do we think we need in order to be happy? Where do we think we're going to get it? What do we think we're limited to? And, and we see that, whatever it might be, sometimes it's an awful lot like Colonel Gaston. Um, And sometimes it's bigger than that. I think in general, we tend to live in a time of pretty blunted aspiration. We don't think we're capable of much. And it's part of what we blow open in the in the course of doing meditation practice. So what we're doing is not just relaxing, you know, and getting a little less stressed, but we're redefining happiness. We're redefining strength. We're taking a critical look at aloneness. Is that real, actually? Um, we're seeing connection in, in a whole other way through the ability to look, not to you know, have an idea first, like, this is what I'm going to find and I'm somehow going to make it so, but because of the incredible ability of awareness to cut through layers of, of obscuration and confusion and say, oh, look at that. Right? So we use the, something like the breath in this style of meditation really just as a beginning. It's like a foundation so that we can take that same acuity of attention to everything and come to this, this very, very different sense really of, of who we are perhaps and, and what our lives might, might be about. That's why it's fun. So do you have any questions just before we, uh, or comments, anything you'd like to say before we, we take a short break? Um,
3: I was wondering whether you could comment on, you know, on the one hand, I would remember kind of um, Thich Nhat Hanh saying just being alive is enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, you know, and the miracle of life itself, and on the other hand, I'm very aware of the ways in which um, my own beliefs or thoughts can limit kind of just what you were saying. Um, and so there will be this thought of, you know, well, what about doing this? And then very quickly is, oh, that's so much work, you know? And and I, I can examine and analyze, you know, the fears and the doubts and all of that. But if you wouldn't mind commenting on how to, how to push through that when it can be quite um, immobilizing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you know there's a greater connection and at the same time there is a, why would you choose to do that? Why don't you do something easier? Mm-hmm. That type of mm-hmm.
2: debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think uh, I applaud Thich Han. I think being alive is enough. And I think what he means by being alive is not um, an ordinary rush of excitement (laughs) about having an experience. Um, You know, I think it's something much deeper than that. Um, And a lot, I think, just depends on having both confidence in yourself and an ability to have a spacious awareness of the thoughts, because, uh, in the course of meditation, one sees a lot, you just see a lot. And that's good. You know, it's this tremendous vehicle for, for understanding. Um, I once marched over to my first meditation teacher where I met Ramdas in this, in my first retreat, um, SN Goenka. And uh, I was 18 years old. I'd gone to India and uh, I'd had a very fragmented, difficult childhood, but I'd never really looked inside myself. I knew I was very unhappy, but I, you know, I'd never been to therapy. I'd never really put the pieces together in, in some way. Um, so my meditation practice was the first time I ever really looked inside myself. And I once went marching up to Goenka and I said to him, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating. (laughs) (laughs) Thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. You know, clearly it was all his fault that I was experiencing all this anger. And of course, I had been hugely angry, but I hadn't seen it. You know, So, so there's a lot of that that happens anyway. And then... Hopefully along with it, I mean, I I didn't get there quite yet at the time I was telling the story, but I came to see that the point was not to judge what was being uncovered, but to have a kind of spaciousness and openness and even a sense of, you know, it's almost a sense of daring sometimes. It's like uh, what your example reminded me of sometimes people I know uh, will make this resolve uh, about generosity Like if a strong impulse arises to give something and it's not going to be harmful, you know, it's not like uh, it's not going to hurt your family or it's not like, um, you know, something like that. It's reasonable. So if a strong impulse to give something arises and it's reasonable, give it. Even if the next 50 thoughts are, I don't know, maybe I'll read it next year. You know, it's been sitting on that pile. It's only been sitting on the pile for two years, you know, like some books I do read after two years, you know, like, or, you know, what if I need it next year? Or, you know, let me just take it to my new apartment and put it in the closet because you never know or, you know, whatever it is. So the impulse, which is reasonable to give arises and then all the fear and the inhibition and or, you know, they're not going to like it. I never give the right thing. Or, you know, whatever it is comes up. That's the withholding. Give it anyway. Right? Because that's the that's the yoga. That's the experiment. It's like, okay. Because what we're doing is we're paying attention to all of that. What does it feel like to have that sense of connection want to give? What's it like when the fear comes? What's it like when I give anyway? You know, we just, we use attention as, Uh, this amazing vehicle that it is to really understand the nature of our experience. And we just go there. But the only way we can do that is if we're not, like, enmeshed in the thoughts, right? If we don't just take them all to heart and, you know, think endlessly about that pile of books and how we need it. And, you know, if we have enough space from that to be able to say, I'm going to make this experiment, I'm going to see what it's like. Um, The story I usually tell is... um, as you know, I'm sure, Uh, this story I put in uh, one of my books, Faith, um, which was about going into this house that a friend had rented for many of us to do a retreat in. And when I went into the bedroom that had been set aside for me, I saw that someone had left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then in the second frame of the cartoon, poor Charlie Brown says, what in the world am I supposed to do about that? (laughs) And then in the the third and final frame, Lucy says to him, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And... Somehow, whenever I was walking by the desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. right? If you really know who you were, it would be a sad story, uh, because that Lucy voice had been so tremendously dominant in my earlier life. So uh, maybe we'll do a little bit of this this afternoon too, um, before we do loving-kindness, but one of the many, many tools of mindfulness um, that are available and that I trained in was something called mental noting where. Uh, We did a little bit of that. Like with the breath, you quietly use a word like in, out, in, out. And if something comes up that's really strong, not like a little dwippy thing, but like strong emotion, strong image or something like that, and the word comes easily, you gently place a label on it. Like, oh, thinking, joy, sorrow, something like that. So I felt from seeing the cartoon, I got a new mental note, which was, Hi, Lucy. Or my favorite form of that was, chill out, Lucy. (laughs) You know, something great would happen, and my first thought would be, it's never going to happen again. And I would respond to the thought with, chill out, Lucy. Right? So there's a lot in that chill out, Lucy, or hi, Lucy. It's not like, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. You've always been right. You always will be right. Take over. Nor is it, oh, my God, Lucy's still here. I mean, I'm not a new meditator anymore, you know. I mean, I have been meditating for over 40 years. Why in the world is Lucy still here? That's a total waste of 40 years, right? It's neither of those. It's like, hi, Lucy. There's presence. There's acknowledgement. There's ease of heart. There's even some tenderness or compassion. That's what we're, we're working with instead of thinking it shouldn't be here anymore. You know, if it is, it's it, it is, right? But we have all the power in the world in changing our relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's take a break and we'll resume. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.